On today's episode, we have an ADV rider that's stuck in Venezuela at a border crossing, and we also have three segments that should give you plenty of information to keep warm when the temperature drops and you still want to ride your bike. And there also may be a product in there that you haven't come across yet. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Spencer Conway has been filming his second series called The Motorcycle Diaries, the first being Africa and the second one now being South America. Now, Spencer has been traveling for months in his attempt at circumnavigating South America. I say attempt because Spencer's trip has not been easy. He travels with a camera person and he's totally self-sufficient. No backup, no support crew, just Spencer and his camera person. Recently, through messaging, he told us that he was stuck in Venezuela due to border problems. He said the situation was dire. Fuel was in short supply, huge lineups, money was difficult to get. He he was out of money and he was refused exit from the country with his motorcycle. So we've arranged to talk with Spencer while he awaits word to see if he's going to be allowed to cross the border with his motorcycle or whether he'll have to turn back and backtrack a huge distance So through all this chaos and and across the borders and through a very thin sounding phone connection, we managed to talk with Spencer and this is what it sounded like. Hello, Spencer. Hi, how are you doing, Jim? I'm doing very well. How about you? 
Yeah, yeah, all good, all good. It's nice to catch up with you again. Yeah, it's good to catch up with you. So where are you right now? Right now I'm in, uh, I'm in Venezuela at the moment. And what are you doing in Venezuela? I've been stuck here for about three weeks. Um, they have a, <laughs> it's crazy, really. Um, they've got a problem with the borders. So all the borders are closed at the moment. Um, people can only go across the western borders on foot. And, uh, you know, that's fine. I can wander across, but then I lose my bike. So I've been negotiating with uh, the Colombian um, customs and some quite high-up generals over here. But it's, uh, it's all red tape at the moment, and it doesn't look like I'm, I'm actually going to get through. Which means um, I thought my trip was coming close to an end, but it looks like I'm going to have to head all the way back across Venezuela and go out the only border that's open at the moment. Things are also worse because they have governor elections on Sunday, so it's a, a little bit chaotic and not super safe. Uh, but it's added on, I'm going to have to head through Boa Vista down into the Amazonas to Manaus and then back into Peru and uh, um, Bolivia and then into um, Colombia to get all the way around. Because I started in Bogota, I think, as you know. So to complete the circumnavigation, I've got to get back to Bogota, but it's added another 7,000 kilometers minimum. Wow. So how long is that going to take you? I think possibly two months um, with filming, of course. It just takes a little bit longer. Uh, the thing is that it's uh, turned into rainy season. So you can imagine the, the Amazon's going to be great fun. I'm going to be covered in mud and falling off loads as usual. <laughs> well, it's going to make great video. Yeah, should do, should do, as long as I don't get injured. Are you there by yourself? Uh, no, I've got Kathy here. She's uh, the camera woman for the, for the show. So... Um, that's great. Uh, and she also happens to be my girlfriend. <laughs> it's an it's a extra bonus. So she's been, she's, been, she's been filming the series, so she's kind of a hero, well, a heroine as well. Uh, she's put up with, I think now we're on 40, just over 46,000 uh, kilometers on this circuit. And she's sat on the back the whole time filming me. So it takes a lot of trust, I think. Yeah, to sit on the back for sure. And I've always thought that when it comes to adventures like this, that the camera person is almost like a bit of an unsung hero with the whole thing because not only do they have to do a, deal with everything that, that is going on with the adventure, on top of that, they've got to worry about always having the camera there and always getting the shot. It's exactly that. But uh, luckily, Kathy doesn't really like the limelight, so she refuses to go on film anyway. But uh, yeah, it's... Can you say that because a lot of the bike shows that I do, you get obviously you get couples coming along talking about maybe doing a trip, you know, two up on a bike. And often, I mean, it's completely understandable, it's often the wife that's going to be on the back. And it'll be great now because uh, Kathy will be at you know, at the shows that we do go to, she's going to be able to give her input on, on what it's like not only to film but to sit on the back on uh, really rough roads as well as like pure asphalt kind of thing. So Add another string to our bow. Hopefully we can, uh, you know, get more and more people interested. So just quickly tell us, what is the, what's the purpose of your trip? Okay. Um, basically, in the long term, uh, I think you know, because uh, you interviewed me before, I circumnavigated Africa. Um, so now this is my second continent. The aim, really, there's loads of aims. Uh, the sort of selfish one is to be the first person to circumnavigate every continent. Uh, before I die, which uh, at this rate I'm going to be about 115 by the time I finish. It's going a bit slowly. <laughs> you got to have goals. 
Got to have goals. Got to have goals. But I mean, so far on this one, I've done Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Brazil, Paraguay, French Guiana, Suriname, Guyana, and now in Venezuela. So it's been absolutely amazing. So that's close. I don't like to say I've done it, but I'm close to having done the second continent. And uh, of course, I'm raising money to save the children. And even more important for me as well is to just uh, kind of hopefully inspire people to travel more and get to know other cultures and other people. I know that sounds really hippie, but I do believe in it. And all the filming is going to be done for television. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's going to be my second series. So it's, uh, it's the Motorcycle Diaries, stolen from Che Guevara's uh, uh, book. Um, so obviously the first one was African Motorcycle Diaries. This one's going to be South American Motorcycle Diaries. And then it's going to be a toss-up between um, Central America and North America and Canada as the next series, or Asia. So uh, we're going to be arguing that one out, um, depending on whether Cathy comes on the next one or not. But I suspect she will be. So what's this trip been like so far? I mean, you're stuck in Venezuela now, but what has it been like up till now? Oh, it's been absolutely incredible. I mean, I'm not sure where we caught up last time, but... Uh, uh, for example, I mean, I know Africa pretty well, so uh, it wasn't such a thrill for me to see all the animals in Africa because I've seen them all my life. But the, the, the animals I've seen here, I mean, we actually went uh, down the Amazon, uh, right across the delta, so that was uh, 46 hours on a ferry with loads of um, colorful hammocks and loads of people. But I mean, we, just to give you a brief idea of what you'll see, I mean, we saw sloths, spiders, snakes, Caymans, armadillos, alpacas, vacunas, llamas, sea lions, dolphins, pelicans, giant blue butterflies, octopus, howler monkeys. It just goes on and on and on. And uh, although they don't have the, you know, immediately impressive, massive animals like, you know, uh, elephants and giraffes and that sort of thing, overall, it really gets into your skin because every South American country has, you know, got something different. I've even uh, witnessed... Um, a penguin headbutting an armadillo, which was quite surreal. And you've, you've <laughs> even got to experience, I think you'd had a, uh, was it a fire ant that ended up biting you? So I had a bullet ant. A bullet ant. Yeah, I had a bullet ant attack me, uh, which is, uh, I, I think if people Google it, they, they'll know I'm not exaggerating. It's my own fault, though, because I was on the side of the road and I was having a wee, and uh, I think I must have been weeing on their, uh, on their nest. <laughs> so one of them got revenge on me. Yeah, it's, it's really intense. It's uh, kind of like 10 cigarette burns in one place, and then it spreads around your body within sort of 30 seconds, and you become really, really itchy and boiling hot. Um, really, really strange. But I'm, I'm actually I'm a useless adventurer either, you know, because everything goes wrong with me. I mean, so far on this trip, I've, I've had... Um, did I speak to you about when I had the uh, aller allergic bee sting reaction? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't remember that. It's bloody terrible. Um, excuse the language. Yeah, I'm, I'm allergic to bees. I have to inject myself with an EpiPen. And uh, we were in Chile, and uh, stupid me, I camped in a, an apple orchard, so obviously full of bees. And I was drinking a Pepsi, and it uh, bit me on the lip. Now, I've got about 20 minutes, and I need to inject myself. And uh, I said to Kathy, look, I'm feeling a bit rough. I'm just going to go and lie down for a few minutes. And I went into the tent, and something, I don't know what, she had a feeling, and she came back to the tent, and I was unconscious. And these two guys uh, were there, luckily, and they dragged me out of the tent, chucked me into a, a truck, and drove to hospital. And on the way to hospital, I stopped breathing. 
So it was a really a radical one. Um, they managed to get me going, but it was only about 15, 20 seconds. But obviously for Kathy, that was pretty horrific. Um, yeah, and then there was the bullet hand. Um, I've also uh, broke, I broke my ribs. It was ridiculous. I was in Argentina, and I was driving along through Patagonia, which is pretty much a desert, and I saw this sort of old Cadillac in the distance, in the sand, sort of half buried. And I thought, oh, Kathy, I've got to film that. It just looks amazing, you know, a rusted out uh, shell of a car. So I went over there and uh, filmed it, and then I came back, and I had the camera around my neck, and I jumped over, <laughs> I jumped over a little fence and put my foot on it. And unfortunately, I landed on the camera, on my chest. Yeah, so I cracked a rib. And I'm sure you can imagine riding a bike with a, a broken rib is really rough. So, um, yeah, that was another thing. And then another occasion, sorry to bore you, but uh, just to like, show you how useless I am, I went on the Paris-Dakar route, because um, I'm, I'm planning on entering the Paris-Dakar. So I went on that route through a place called Tupiza, and uh, it was just pure sand, pure, pure sand. And, you know, a lot of bikers are scared of sand, and including me. And, uh, yeah, I made a bit of a cock-up, and uh, I came off, and the pannier hit my knee and sent my knee sideways. Uh, so I ended up going back to uni and going to hospital there. Apart from that, I've had spider bites. Uh, I camped on a bed of spiders and ended up with about 15, 15 bites on my leg. So it's been hilarious. I'm, I'm glad I'm still here. <laughs> Do you think a trip like this is, is really physically demanding? I mean, the list that you just gave there makes it sound like it is. I'll tell you what, I, it's, kind of different. it's kind of different to Africa. Africa was more dealing with really hectic roads and uh, lack of gasoline and, uh, you know, the, that kind of setup. Whereas here, there's a lot of change. In, it's, the, it's the climate, really, and the little creepy crawlies here. It's a different kind of difficult. I mean, altitude, I found out I'm no good at altitude. It took me uh, three attempts to get over the 5,023 meters. At 3,500 meters, I just breathed properly. And uh, Kathy tapped me on the shoulder. Actually, she didn't. She hit me on the back of the helmet and said, you're riding really badly. So, I was, you know, I'm a man, so I was like, how dare you? And then I realized that I was getting a little bit spaced out, actually, from the altitude. And uh, it's, it's kind of like sucking in syrup. You feel as though your lungs are full of syrup, and it can make you panic slightly. But no doubt I was riding badly, so we drove back to La Paz, and, uh, yeah, I managed it on the third occasion. And that was on the route to Death Road. I don't know if you... Do you know Death Road? No, I don't. Tell me about that. Okay, yeah. I, I did want to actually, if you're interested, tell me about tell you about some of my favorite roads. Sure. Bikers might be interested in that one. Is that good with you? Yeah, no, that's great. Okay, well, um, Death Road is quite a famous road in, um, in Bolivia. And what it was, uh, they, ha they had 400 deaths a year on this road because it's extremely steep. It's cut out of a mountainside. Uh, it was built by uh, Bolivian prisoners. And uh, a lot of them lost their lives as well. What they've done is they've built a new death road, which all the cars go on. And now they've got the old death road, which is used by mountain bikes um, and, you know, adrenaline junkie kind of things. And they've lost a few tourists as well. That was one really great road. But for me, it was a, a little bit too touristy now. The one I really found amazing was uh, uh, Devil's Trampoline, they call it, if anyone wants to look that up. Trampoline del Diablo. That's in Colombia. And uh, Kathy and I were the only, the only tourists there. 
another incredible road, mountainous road, really windy. But it was uh, like, also, again, like a Spielberg film, really, really beautiful. Uh, lianas hanging, waterfalls, giant butterflies. So it was such a pleasure to drive through. And a, a bit of a tough ride, but absolutely fantastic. Really loved it. And uh, one of my other favorites is the Carretera Austral, which is a, a road in Chile, which goes through, it basically joins loads of lakes. So you have the pleasure of, you have to rush to a certain ferry, because there's only one a day, and you jump on that ferry with your bike, and it takes you about 10 minutes, then you jump to another island, and then you ride a bit, and then, it's, and then the same thing three times in the day. But you've got loads of other locals like, racing with you along these dirt tracks. So yeah, it was, it was kind of exciting. And a different kind of riding rather than just trudging along all day. Nice to have that little break on a ferry and these beautiful, beautiful lakes. So, oh no, the riding's absolutely incredible here. What was the name of that road again, the last one? It, it's called the Carretera um, Austral, A-S-T-R-A-L, in Chile. Um, it, it basically starts, you know, Ushuaia, the southernmost point. Yeah. Um, of South America, which is an iconic place for uh, bikers to get to, obviously. Uh, if you're heading back up the way, as soon as you come into Chile, you hit the Carretera Austral. And, and for anybody who's into biking, say, at some point in their life, if they can get onto that road. Because the, the, the wonderful thing about South America is that you can have the choice of how tough you want things to be. So you often have options of uh, asphalt, you know, sealed roads, or if you're feeling a bit stronger or a bit tougher, you can, you can pick the dirt tracks. So unlike Africa, where you often don't have a choice, uh, it, it's, a really, it's a really great ride for all levels of riders. So, you know, that's, that's another attraction of it. I'm really glad you said that because I was just about to ask you about the filming because I know when you're making a film like this, often, it, you know, they, they really focus on, and I don't know how much ed, um, approval you're going to have on the editing of this, but I know they often focus on the more dramatic scenes, the, the problems you have and things like that. And that can sort of paint a, a bit of a negative picture about a place. Um, so, I completely agree with you. Yeah, so, so I mean, yeah. And, and I think you have to do it because I know that viewers want to see things that are sensational, now, I completely agree with you, and what I've tried to do is, well, I like to anyway, is focus on the positives. I mean, the people, absolutely amazing people. They are just so friendly. I, I, I can't even list how many people have helped me out, how open everyone is. And the thing is, uh, this dramatic business, I completely agree for TV, they tend to do it. But all I've done is really just film what happens every day. So, um, you know, with the editing, let's hope that they... They pick on the beautiful things. I mean, for example, there's, a, there's another place um, in Brazil which really blew my mind. It's called Lençóis Maharense. It's a national park, but it's the only place in the whole world where there's a desert with freshwater lakes. It's, it's incredible. So you've got these massive sand dunes, and in the depression between the sand dunes, they have pure uh, water, not salt. And they stay there pretty much all of the year, because just underneath the sand is an uh, impermeable layer of rock. So it's a really unusual geographical setup where you've got a pure desert where you'd expect no water, and then these beautiful massive lakes that you can swim in. So I'm, I, just, I want to show people the beauty of these places and um, also the, the safety as well. I mean, Venezuela, I think I had a couple of emails with you where I was feeling a bit down. 
In the south of Venezuela, of course, I mean, I'm not going to deny it. They've got problems here. Um, you know, everyone's queuing for petrol all day. Uh, there's a problem with jobs, etc. But the people are just so incredibly friendly and support each other. I mean, sometimes they queue for six, seven hours for petrol most of the day. But they've got this sort of attitude where they just sit around, they open their pickup trucks, they cook some food, they share coffee, you know, they try, they try to make a day of it. So um, I think they've had it for years. But uh, it's just the, the, the power of positivity is just great. So, yeah, um, I think there might be a couple of dramatic things, but that's because I'm, a, you know, things just seem to happen to me all the time. <laughs> but I just hope uh, overall it just gives the whole idea of how the people are, how beautiful the landscapes are, what great riding there is, and uh, the amount of animals that you'll see. It, it's mind-blowing. I've loved every minute of it. I could turn around and go the other way and just start again, actually. When you're planning your route and you're you're deciding where to go, you mentioned that one of the roads that you took, uh, I think it was Death Road, was very touristy. Are you looking for, yeah. um, is, is it just a route that you're looking for? Are you looking for the, the less-traveled places? Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm really looking for the less-traveled places. Um, I mean, for example, everybody's seen uh, Machu Picchu, um, you know, they've seen uh, Angel Falls. So I don't, I don't go to any of those places at all. I try to find dirt roads and try to find tough roads. Uh, I just, obviously, Death Road, I just wanted to give it a try because it's famous. But uh, I always find that the out-of-the-way places are, are incredible because you're, sort of, you're more alone and um, you just deal with things as they come and you haven't got sort of restaurants and things uh, turning up all the time. It's not for everybody, but I, I love it. It's, uh, you know, when you, when, you have a, when you have a few problems with petrol or routes or whatever, because as you know, I don't have a GPS or a phone, um, so I get lost loads and loads and loads. And I, I just find that the best thing. Which is, which is really part of the adventure for you, isn't it? That's why you, I mean, you do it on purpose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I have, sorry, Jim, can I just tell you a funny one? I've just remembered. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I, was, uh, I went into Colombia yesterday um, illegally. Uh, sorry, Colombia, if you're listening. <laughs> Uh, there's basically there's a bridge between Venezuela and Colombia which is only open to foot passengers. So I needed to get a new tire uh, for my bike, and that was the only place they had them. They don't have any in Venezuela. So I walked across the bridge, and the Venezuelan said to me, well, "How long are you going for?" So I said, "Well, three hours or so." So they stamped me out of Venezuela, and uh, when I came to the Colombian side, there was nobody there. So I just walked into this town and uh, got my tire. Everything fine, and then it was getting late. The border was closing at nine. I w wandered across in the dark, holding my tire, and the Colombians were there, and they stopped me straight away. And they said no, nope. and it was a hundred sixty-five dollars. It's quite expensive here. And uh, they said no, nope, there's no way. You're not allowed to bring products across the border. You're only allowed to bring food. So I went back across the bridge, and I thought, okay, well, worst comes to the worst, I'm going to lose the tire. There's nothing I can do. And this tiny little guy came up to me. You can't make it up, Jim. This tiny little guy came up to me with a wooden leg. And he said, listen, no problem. I can take your tire across. And uh, I said, well, how am I going to know that, you know, you're not going to nick it. You're not going to steal it. And he said, you've got to trust me. I work with the paramilitary. And if I start stealing things, they look bad too. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. And he disappeared underneath the bridge, went through some reeds, went through the river, underneath the customs office and came with my tire. And that, and that was that. But what a story. 
And uh, anyway, so I came back, and uh, on my way back, I came through, and there were no customs officers at all. So I'm in this really strange situation. I'm in Venezuela right now, but I've been stamped out of Venezuela. So I'm sort of not in a country at all at the moment, legally. So I've got that headache to deal with tomorrow. And also they've got um, elections at the moment, so everything's closed. So I'm stuck for a little bit here, um, probably a, another few days. I'm waiting for a regulator because uh, I had to redo all my wiring. It burnt out. So I'm waiting for a regulator from Bogota. As soon as that's on, I'm uh, going to head off and do the other 7,000 kilometers or so. Well, when we were emailing back and forth there a couple of weeks back, y- you were sure. stuck there. You didn't have any money with you. This is a huge problem. Uh, I have this funny situation where you cannot get cash. And if you do, you have to have a suitcase or a wheelbarrow to put it in. Um, because $1 is 15000 of their money, and you only get $100 bills. So you can imagine how much that is. It's big wads of money. So if you do get hold of it, you haven't got room in your pockets for the money. Um, and if you don't get hold of it, a lot of them don't accept credit cards. So what, what I would say to people, I really, really want people to come to Venezuela because I've been here close to a month. I have not seen a single biker, and every single person I speak to says there have been no tourists here for 50 years. And obviously I understand it, it's got a bad reputation, but what I could say to proper adventure riders, if they're really keen, it's great. You've just got to overcome, you know, uh, petrol's tough to get hold of. Uh, luckily, motorbikes do have a little bit of a priority. They don't have to wait in those eight-hour queues. They can sort of slide past. But uh, as long as you're willing to accept delays and um, slight money problems, it's, uh, it's fairly cheap, and the people are beautiful. And in the south, I mean, I, I, entered, I had no idea about Venezuela, but I entered in the south, and there's a national park called the Gran Sabana, and it, it is absolutely beautiful, and I'd never heard of it. It's full of waterfalls, uh, cascades, huge ones, um, every corner, and uh, it's got a massive mountain, a little, a little bit like Table Mountain in Cape Town, a very, very long, flat mountain that gets covered in clouds, so it looks like a tabletop on top of a mountain. And just, just a beautiful place and beautiful people. And then I went through the center of Venezuela, and there's a, there's a place uh, between Merida and Cristobal, which I, I called it the Valley of Flowers. It's a drop of uh, 2,000 meters from the top to the bottom. But the whole valley is made of cultivated flowers like roses, et cetera, et cetera, but loads of colors. And what they do in the evenings, all the farmers put out these little lanterns in their fields. So when you're riding down these windy roads, you've got all these red, yellows, blues, greens, all lit up against the, against the mountainside. It's really magical. If you ever get out of Venezuela, when, <laughs> when do you think we would see the film? I think it's going to be about six months, to tell you the truth. Because it started off as eight programs, but I've been here now, I've been here a year and two months. Um, so I, it's possibly going to be 12. So we need to do all the editing and, uh, well, not me, but uh, they need to. All the editing and the music and the voiceovers. And uh, up to now, I've got a, over 200 hours of footage. So some poor fellow has to do, you know, put that into 12 hours. So I'm, I'm glad it's not me. But uh, I'll keep in touch with you, of course, and, and, and let you know exactly when it is. Spencer, it's great to get an update from you, and you hang in there, and we'll talk to you again. 
I will do. Oh, thanks a lot, Jim. Your program's fantastic. And if anyone wants to get in touch with me, they're more than welcome on my website or, or Facebook or Instagram, whatever. And that was Spencer Conway while he's awaiting border clearance in Venezuela and South America. You can follow Spencer on Facebook, of course, to find out what he's doing and also find out when his series hits the television screen. You can also visit his website at www.spencer-conway.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. Well, coming up next, we have three segments on cool riding tips. No, not cool riding tips, riding in the cool tips. Well, I think you get it anyway. And we also have a product in here that you may not have heard of before, but could be really key for making your cool riding a little more enjoyable. Andy Goldfine is the owner of Aerostitch, a motorcycle apparel manufacturer and retailer. He's an avid motorcyclist, and he was awarded the American Motorcyclist Association Dud Perkins Lifetime Achievement Award for, quote, his generous and tireless support of motorcycling, unquote. Way back in 1983, Andy bought some sewing machines. That was when the sewing machine industry was shutting down in the U.S., but the machines he bought were designed for sewing snowmobile suits. So he took those and he designed what he would call the Roadcrafter riding suit. Well, the rest is motorcycle history. And Andy Goldfine still lives and breathes motorcycles. As a matter of fact, maybe even more than ever now. And he rides in all weather, including the cold. My name is Andy Goldfine, and I'm uh, the founder and uh, head uh, troublemaker at the Aerostitch Riders Equipment Company. Uh, and uh, I like to ride in the winter when I can, as much as I can. I don't like using cars very much, even though I have one. Andy, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. It's great to be back. So if I was to start off and say to you, you know, I'm coming to you and, and say, Andy, what do you recommend for me to ride? I want to ride my motorcycle in the Pacific Northwest right through the winter. Well, the pre-qualifier is if it's for commuting or for weekend overnight adventure rides. And since this is Adventure Rider Radio, let's talk about that first. For adventure riding, the first and most probably comfort important thing is the base layer. There are three types of base layers. There's various kinds of essentially polyesters and nylons. Uh, many, many brands, lots and lots of great uh, fiber and uh, other related technologies to the polyester base layers. Uh, there's also silk and there's merino or really fine wool base layers. Uh, and the basic advantages of silk are it's strong, it's warm, it's very thin. Uh, it's quite comfortable, but it is it not quite as warm as um, the other two types. You can which most people don't know, hand wash silk pretty much in a motel uh, sink and it'll be dry in the morning. It works really great. It's super comfortable. It's a much tougher fabric than people think it is when they think of silk. But silk long underwear is, is great. The most popular kind, for mostly for cost reasons, is various kinds of polyester. I don't need to mention any brands. We sell some and almost every outfitter for adventure riding sells some kind of a polyester or nylon base layer. They're inexpensive and they're warm and they're durable. 
the only negative to them is um, if you're living in them for a couple of days, they're not real good with your bodily smells. The plastics pick up uh, odors and hold them. So you have to figure out how to clean them regularly or they smell. The kind of base layer that I like the best is Merino wool. We sell kind and there's lots of brands. Uh, it, it It's comfortable against your skin. It's very warm. There's multiple different thicknesses. I think a good wool will tell you how many grams per something it is. And it's uh, look for Merino wool long underwear. It's two or three times as expensive as the polyester kinds and the nylon kinds, but it doesn't hold smells. You can wear it day after day for a week and it won't get stinky. Uh, you can wash it in a sink in a motel and bring it out in your hands with just this bar of soap that's there on the side of the motel counter. And it's ready to go in the morning and, and good for another week or longer. It's, it's really my choice and my recommendation if you have the money. And if you don't, polyester would be the next choice or nylon. The silk always struck me as something, that, you know, an exotic fabric for people with lots of money. Well, it is kind of an exotic fabric because of how it's marketed today. It's, it's you know, part of women's fashion and stuff like that. But it goes back centuries. The Chinese have figured out how to essentially using silkworms mass produce it. It's not that expensive. It is much, much, much tougher than people realize. And um, it feels nice against your skin and it's warm. It's not usually formulated in knit like uh, wool is or like the polyesters are, but it does work and it is good. And so you can have silk glove liners, you can have a silk helmet liner, you can have silk t-shirts and long underwear. It's all good. It doesn't sell much uh, that I'm aware of. Our number one seller is a, we have a couple different price points of the polyester nylon pipe on long underwear and base layer. And I think we only have one or maybe two different weights of the merino wool. It's notable that I asked you about riding through the winter and you immediately went to undergarments. <laughs> and I guess a lot of people would expect you to instantly say, well, you need this jacket, you need that jacket. Why so much concentration on the undergarments? Well, that's where comfort really starts. I think that one of the tricks for me is to not wear regular boxer or brief underwear underneath a base layer of long underwear. Uh, there's too many layers in places where I personally don't like too many layers. So if I go uh, riding in the winter, my long underwear, my base layer of merino wool is my underwear. And then I have a lot of freedom of movement. Um, I can't speak for any other uh, riders out there, but it's very easy to like become, there was a, a, ch a movie that was very popular called A Christmas Story and they bundled up this little kid so he could, once he fell over, he couldn't move his arms and get back up. And it, it's really true that if you can't move as com as freely as you do in the rest of the year, when you're all bundled up, it's not any fun to be outside. It doesn't matter whether you're skiing or motorcycle riding or whatever you're doing, you have to be able to move. So your base layer becomes your t-shirt that you wear in the summer, and it becomes your briefs or your boxers or whatever that you would wear in the summer. And then on top of that, depending on the temperature, you would add either a layer of cotton shirt or a microfiber shirt or a riding jersey. You would add a, maybe a fleece layer. And on your legs, you would add either cotton jeans over your base layer and under your riding suit, or you might add a pair of fleece pants. 
I'm glad you said that about mobility because yeah, that's the first thing you notice is you start to layer up. You lose mobility. It's harder to swing your leg over the bike if you've got a tall bike, if you've got all kinds of layers on. So right. probably important to look for some better quality. Like you said, the merino wool, um, that is beautiful stuff because it's, it's so much insulation value for such thin gear. But Yeah, between, between you and Canada and me in northern Minnesota, uh, the people who are listening to us in Texas got to be scratching their heads. <laughs> thinking, what are you talking about? You what are you guys talking winter. about? <laughs> you know, we're, we're experts at, at, at all of the winter stratagems that lots of famous people, guys like uh, Mark Twain and Garrison Keillor have said it's really not a – adverse weather is a clothing problem and not anything more. So when it comes to jackets, then the outer layer, does it make a difference mm-hmm. what we wear? Well, it needs to be wind tight. It needs to be uh, waterproof. It needs to be um, roomy enough to contain a, these extra base layers. Some of the European cut adventure riding jackets are simply not roomy enough to give you room to have both a bunch of layers and or two or three layers and um, freedom and freedom of movement. Uh, and I don't want to point fingers at anyone specifically, but winter gear, the outer layer needs to be big enough to contain your base layer, a fleece layer, or one of those little down sweaters that is popular now, the goose down uh, things with, that are sweater weight. Um, it needs to contain three or four layers. And in the, and if it's a closely fitted adventure jacket, uh, which they are popular and they look real nice in the summer when you wear them, you won't be able to do all that. And I think really when it comes to adventure riding, it ends up, you know, you're riding in all different conditions. Even if it was in the summertime, you head up into the mountains, if you're in a mountainous area and you're into some cold weather, so you want that ability to uh, to be able to vary for all the conditions. And, and that's really, I mean, that's adventure riding. That's getting out there and, and doing all the extremes. So what you're saying is when you're buying a jacket, you got to make sure that you've got enough room that uh, or adjustability in there that you can throw yep. some some undergarments in. I'm a big believer in lots of little layers. Uh, so I start with a base layer, and I'll add a microfiber shirt, and then I'll add a fleece or down sweater, and then I might add a riding, a windproof riding jersey, and then I'll add the outer jacket. One of the curiousest things about uh, layering like this, besides the obvious of giving you lots of control as the temperature comes up and down during the day, is it how the different layers slide against one another make a real difference in how much freedom of movement you feel. It's almost like you want a slipperyish layer and then a insulating fle- a fleece is very grabby and some of the riding jerseys are very slippery. So you want to and so the microfiber shirt is pretty slippery. So you almost want to alternate slippery and then f- fuzzy uh, insulative and then another slippery and then a fuzzy insulated so that as you rotate your shoulders and move around things slip a little against each other but it's very important to be able to have your freedom of movement and that's sort of engineered when they found the a guy named mallory who died trying to climb mount everest in the 30s i think uh, expedition called mallory and irvine climate change caused his body to be thawed out a year or two ago and they looked at how he had layered up and he had really finely woven english ventile cotton and then uh, wool, and then another, and and it was all designed using the technology of the day to allow him to move his body freely and still provide a lot of insulation. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. But so when it comes to the jacket, really what we're looking for, like you said, waterproof, windproof. Um, I was going to mention a high collar. That to me has always been a big part of uh, my uh, criteria for choosing a jacket. 
it is a, a big part. One of the uh, most underrated pieces of gear for winter riders is a, is a scarf. We sell several different kinds of silk scarves, um, and they're very thin and they're very slippery. As you so, if you zip your jacket up, and there's enough, and then you spin your neck to the left or the right, it slips. It's like a it's like a sleeve. It's like a gasket, but it's so slippery that there's no chafing or anything like that. Uh, around your neck so you can block the wind have your collar zipped all the way up and turn your head to the left and to the right and up and down in every which way and if there's a silk scarf around it you, you don't get any chafing during the day which is really nice no wind no chafing yeah and, and i don't use a silk scarf because i don't have one but again the scarf around your neck protects your neck but it's also folded over on your chest and usually gives you a little bit more insulation and wind protection right there on your chest where you need it correct i went on a winter all day adventure ride with a fella that didn't have a lot of experience a few years ago and he got hypothermic because he wanted to have freedom on the moon he was a very athletic rider and he burns a lot of calories when he rides um it's better to kind of be a little more bundled up if you have freedom of movement and comfort and be able to open vents and zippers and let air come through than to dress too light because it took us like four hours to get him unhypothermic at a cafe. Cafe. It didn't ruin the whole day, but we were scared because he was. He made himself hypothermic out there riding along at forty miles an hour, in twenty-eight degree weather or something like that, or twenty-two degree weather, with essentially heavy summer clothes instead of winter riding clothes. the The chill, fa- the wind chill factor, is a very significant thing when you're moving. It's a, nothing to be messed with. If you start getting hypothermic, you can't just snap your fingers and come out of it. It takes hours and hours to rewarm yourself up, and I'm sure you know that up in Canada. Yes, definitely. You guys did a, a thing a couple of years back where you took a zero motorcycle, their electric motorcycle, and you rode it through the winter. Yep, we did. We had a lot of fun. The zero motorcycles are made in Santa Cruz, California, a place that's not very famous for their winters, and uh, they wanted to know how their electric motorcycle would work in cold weather, not just the battery and propulsion system, but how much weathering the bike's frame and chassis and other components would do when you when you commute in a northern tier city where they use a lot of chlorides, a lot of different salt and stuff on the road and sand, winter is really filthy. So for me and most of my riding buddies here, we put our, our motorcycles away in the winter because all the light aluminum metals and stuff that the bikes are made of we don't want to ruin them. Anyway, zero people wanted to see how bad the bike would deteriorate in salt and those kind of conditions and wanted to see how good the electric drive system would work and the control system would work at 10 or 15 below zero. And we wanted to see how good our clothing would work in those conditions. We signed up four summer commuting riders at Aerostitch who uh, were very experienced and happy to volunteer. And then we got the zero and we put studs in the tires. We put heated grips on it. And uh, the studs were low, low-profile studs, not the off-road kind, but like the old car tire studs used to be. And we started taking turns commuting. And the rule was that each of us had to leave the bike outside every night, and at work it had to be outside. So it never went inside for the entire length of the winter. It stayed outside if it was 22 below zero. It stayed outside, and somebody got out the next morning when it was up to nine below. <laughs> 
again, the people in Texas are going <laughs> to probably not understand this. But That's Fahrenheit, too, you know, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, right. So it was like 22 below Fahrenheit overnight low. And then and by the time it was 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning when somebody finally went to work, it would be up to 9 below. And the zero people wanted to see how that worked. We wanted to see how our gear worked. And we made a lot of really interesting discoveries. The bike handled it fine. As a matter of fact, the the, the some of the commute one of the volunteers lived about 20 miles away my commute was three miles another person had about a five or six mile commute each way and uh we all had different routes and some had some highway miles and we we learned mainly the number one takeaway is after you get over the initial feeling of oh my gosh this is so strange and so weird it just becomes routine. You forget about that you're doing something unusual by the third or fourth day. The, you, you've sort of sort through your gear. You have everything that you need. You figure out what boots, what gloves, what riding suit, what insulation layers. And it just becomes another day of going to work by about the fourth day for all of us. And we looked at each other and we went, this is incredible. We always thought this was the greatest heroic thing in the world before we started. And by two weeks into it, we were looking at each other going, well, why haven't we ever done this before? We, it was, <laughs> you know, it's the story you'd expect to hear is, well, we did it for two weeks and we thought this is just stupid <laughs> and we quit. No, no, no. We thought, we thought, well, this is, this is so easy that, you know, it felt weird at first because you pull up to a stoplight, it's five above or two below or whatever it is. And the cars are all frosted up. And they got icicles hanging from the underneath of the car, and the exhausts are issuing clouds and clouds of steam. And you feel like like you're lost in another world because you're sitting there on a motorcycle, all bundled up, perfectly comfortable. But it's like you're on another planet because everybody else is enclosed in their in their vehicles. And you're feeling darn good about it. The electric bike was cool because you don't have to manage any kind of internal combustion. There was no fire. So you'd go out and you'd unplug it. And you flip the switch on and you're ready to go and it just goes. So, and you don't have to manage anything. It just goes. What about gear? What did you end up wearing? Uh, I started out with a regular uh, Aerostitch R3 one-piece coverall suit. Um, and it, it was my regular one. And I decided I wanted, for comfort, a little roomier one. And I know this guy who owns Aerostitch and he made me one mm-hmm. uh, that has we, – we offer custom alterations – so I had one made kind of a fat suit kind of, which was uh, my normal size, but from the knees up through the arm hole and then down to the underside of the sleeve to about the forearm, I had about a two-inch wide panel on each side inserted into a standard my standard size, which made it very nice, very roomy. Um, and, and we would, if somebody wants, that's another thing your audience might want to know. If you're really going to ride a lot in the winter it's a separate wardrobe almost than a summer adventure riding or commute so I used all my regular stuff that I use the rest of the year but I did have a extra big riding suit made now the other people the other three people or or four people in this experiment used their regular Aerostitch clothes a couple of them used winter parkas that over their Aerostitch gear Uh, but I, I had the luxury of actually modifying my regular size and making one, which is still in my basement. So that's the R3. That's the full suit that you're, that you're wearing. Yeah, correct. And if I wasn't the head of Aerostitch, I don't know what I would have done, but uh, it, it got much easier when I had a roomy suit. 
But would you recommend a, a one-piece suit or a jacket and pants setup? I like a one-piece for commuting, uh, but if I was traveling uh, on an overnight adventure ride, I would probably want the Darien outfit. Right, because when you're commuting, you're, you're talking about being able to take it off and be in your work clothes. and, and There's Yeah, for my commute, as I said, it was three miles. Some of The longest fellow that we did this with, I think he had about an eight or 10-mile, 12-mile commute or something. But for commuting applications, totally different than being on the bike all day on an adventure ride or multiple days in a row on an adventure ride. In a commuting scenario, you use what I would label the thermos bottle effect. You're dressing for the commute in a warm place. And as you step outside of your home or go into your garage to get on your bike, you button up everything, zip everything, and you don't really even need a base layer if your commute isn't more than 20 minutes. You're, it, you just sort of hold the warmth in. It's not as complex to be on the bike for 20 minutes at a time in a commuting scenario as it is to be on the bike for four hours between stops. Sure, you're going from one warm place to another. Right. So it's it became very simple. My only unusual piece was that I had a looser-than-normal suit made about two or three weeks into the into our little project. But as far as which, adventure riding in the wintertime, your choice would be? The Darien jacket, is, which is cut to be roomier, especially in the shoulders and upper body. Uh, it was designed originally so you could put uh, motocross-style armor under it, so it's plenty roomy. Um, and the, I like the AD1 pants or the Darien pants, both. But I lo- when you stop on an all-day ride to have a sandwich, campfire, restaurant, whatever, the Darien pants over the base layer or over the base layer jeans fleece layer um, those are, it's nice to be able to go in and warm up and have your cocoa and your sandwich at a restaurant stop or at a campfire, um, and take the jacket off. I don't want to be stuck in the suit when I'm adventure riding. Yeah, right. That's a personal thing. Now that doesn't mean we won't sell someone a one piece suit for commuting and adventure riding both. They work. People have been all over the world in our one piece road crafters and now our R3s. Um, and reported that they work fine. Andy, great to talk to you again. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. Great to talk to you again and to have an opportunity to talk with your audience. And that was Andy Goldfine, the owner of Aerostitch from the Aerostitch Manufacturing Facility in Duluth, Minnesota. Well, don't go anywhere. We're going to be back in just a minute to find out more. But first, I want to thank a couple of sponsors that helped make this episode possible for you. Now, you know that standing on your foot pegs is the key to riding in rough stuff. And, you know, when you're standing, it's your feet that are in control, mostly anyway. Well, if you have good foot pegs, that is. Because it's not just a wider peg that makes an aftermarket peg great. It's the design, the manufacturing process, and ultimately it's the company that stands behind it. IMS Products has earned a reputation by building race quality parts, and they now have a complete line of foot pegs for your bike. IMS pegs are designed for adventure riding. Specifically, it's not just somebody designed a peg and put some sharp teeth on it and said, there you go, it's an adventure peg. This is designed for adventure riding. Everything from their their watershed design that encourages mud and crap to drop away from the peg to the shape of the teeth to make sure that you maintain your foot contact on the peg. And, and really importantly, the width of the peg, where that width has been added, it all makes a difference. It makes the difference. I've been riding on IMS pegs now for quite a while. And if I were to get a new bike today, tomorrow, one of the first mods I would do was go get a set of pegs from IMS and put them on. I'm that impressed with them. 
IMS pegs are made in the USA. They're guaranteed for life. And if you fracture them, they're going to replace them. It's that simple. Drop by their website, have a look at their lineup of, of adventure motorcycle pegs at www.imsproducts.com and, and make sure, shoot them a note, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so that they know it works for them because they're one of the ones that are, are helping bring this episode to you. And the other is PSSOR, Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. Now, you've probably heard the episodes that we do with Brett Tax. Brett Tax is one of the owners of PSSOR. And you can get a lot of knowledge from just listening to, to Brett talk on here with me about riding and technique and our skills. Imagine what you're going to get if you take one of their courses. Now, they do a, a couple of different courses, well, a number of different courses, really. But really importantly, for adventure motorcycling, they've got some a base camp style courses where you go and you learn uh, at one location and then they've got the other style which is their expedition style where you're actually going on a trip and learning on a trip which is really cool a great way to get out for a ride with people who can teach you along the way and you know it's amazing what having an instructor somebody who's trained to look for this sort of thing there with you that can spot something you're doing that you may not even realize that would help improve your riding skills so well worth your money to get out there and learn to be a better rider drop by their website www.psor and anytime you're dealing with them again make sure you mention adventure rider radio so that they know it's working for them You know, at least for most of us, when it comes to riding in cool weather, it's our hands that end up getting cold first. You know, you're riding along, you've got the wind blowing across your hands, you've got the wind chill effect, throw some moisture onto your gloves, and you've got added cooling, evaporation, and next thing you know, your heated grips can't even keep up. Well, there may be a solution, and I'll tell you, it couldn't be simpler. You just keep the wind away from your hands. And here's one way you can do it. My name is Brian Eller. Uh, I'm from Oregon originally. I was born in Portland, lived here most of my life, and we build motorcycle hand covers. My name is John Sullivan. Um, I go by Sully. I live in Southern Oregon, uh, originally from London, England, and uh, I'm a co-owner of Hippo Hands Motorcycle Hand Covers. Brian, Sully, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much. Thank you. So you manufacture, well, let me back up a bit. I think I was, was going to jump too far ahead there. You guys have owned the company for how long now? Uh, the last three years. So you're not the inventors of this product? No, we're we're reinventing them a bit. But no, they, it, the history of it goes back to the early 70s with Craig Vetter. Tell us about it. Well, the story goes, and I have not yet met Craig Vetter myself, but the story goes he was on a cold motorcycle trip with his buddies everybody was freezing specifically their hands and he ended up having the idea of taking his old gray down sleeping bag out of his panniers or out of his kit and taping them around his handlebars so it created this big insulated wind block for his hands and rode the rest of the trip that way in comfort and his friends initially you know, jokingly were calling him uh, hippo hands because of the large bulky gray sleeping bag wrapped around his handlebars. And he sort of laughed all the way to the bank because he ended up turning it into a really successful product. Of course, Craig Vetter, you know, he's famous for the Windjammer fairing. It, it was Correct. him that actually started the company then originally. Correct. Ah, so then did it go through someone else and then to you guys? Yes, it did. 
Yeah, it sounds like uh, Craig Vetter let the uh, trademark expire. I think it was in business for quite a few years, and uh, then the trademark just expired, and it was picked up by um, uh, Weld Vintage Motorcycles, uh, which was a company based out of uh, Ontario, Canada. And uh, that's the company that uh, we purchased the business from. Well, if if Craig Vetter started out by wrapping a sleeping bag around the handlebars, why don't we just do that instead of buying hippo heads? <laughs> you can try that. You can try that as an option, and I think uh, some of the some of our competition uh, you'd have the same experience with it. It's uh, it it works, uh, but it doesn't fit too well, and maybe uh, just doesn't quite work, and it's not quite as convenient to. Um, install them on the bike. <laughs> it there, takes it takes a lot of tape. There Jim. could be a, a safety issue there as well. Yeah, I, I had a, a set uh, some years back and um, the, the same thing. They didn't fit. Actually, one of the biggest problems I had with them was they were actually scooping wind into the cover, mm-hmm. which is supposed to keep my hands warm. And then the other thing is as soon as you pull your hand out, it collapses on you. Um, all of those sorts of problems that go with it. But let's let's talk about Hippo Hands. So describe the product. Well, the product, we have several models to fit, to fit different types of bikes. Uh, they are made out of 1,000 denier Cordura. It's waterproof Cordura. It's a foam liner, and then it's uh, a soft uh, fleece-like material on the inside. So they are basically designed to fit over the end of your handlebar, over the, uh, the bar end, and either capture mirrors and or take turn signals that may be on the bar and close uh, with a velcro a simple velcro closure and leaving kind of a, a a nice rigid opening so you're able to put your hand in access your handlebar take it out at any speed and it'll maintain its shape i guess that's the improvement on the uh on the sleeping bag theory although to be honest i haven't tried the sleeping bag on my handlebars, yeah. but I'm guessing that that's the the major improvement. There is the uh, the hand opening is just nice and rigid, and it just gives you full access while you're riding. Well, I think the average sleeping bag would also keep the tops of your legs warm, but I mean, <laughs> the, the other problems that go along with that, I, I can only imagine. I think it would be extremely dangerous to try. But, but in any case, what we're talking about here is basically it's a bag that goes over your hand grips that has a sort of a steady opening there that you can reach in and out of, and it protects you from the wind, right? So if you have heated grips, you'll actually get something out of your heated grips for once rather than just the palm of your hand getting really hot and your hand freezing on top. That is a really nice way to um, marry these hand covers with heated grips because then it's just a cozy little little snug package there for your hand. So, yeah, but the goal is to keep the wind and or rain off of your hands, but particularly just the cold. And as you know, if you ride, even if you're riding in 50 degrees with that 50 degree air blowing on your hand at 65 miles an hour, it just it so feels so frigid, and just keeping that air off of your hands allows you to wear thin gloves and just keeps your hands warmer. Yeah, and one of the things I like about the idea of this is that you maintain your dexterity by wearing thin gloves. You don't have to have a big, bulky glove, because that's part of the problem we, when we dress up for the colder weather, is I find immediately, as soon as I go into my, my fall gear, I go to swing my leg over the bike, and just I just feel like a, like a Michelin man. Absolutely. Um, yeah, 
I've been through the same experience with the thick winter Gore-Tex gloves. You lose dexterity. Um, you just can't feel your controls as well. And your hands just get fatigued. I mean, if you're in traffic and you're constantly clutching up and down through the gearbox, um, you end up with carpal tunnel pretty much. So um, what, what we find is wearing just summer mesh gloves and the combination of um, heated grips with hippo hands is just a win-win. It really is a fantastic experience. How do you stop the wind from rushing in over where the, where it wraps around the cables? Well, either there's – it depends on the motorcycle. So some of our models have a thin nylon material with uh, just a Ziploc uh, closure, just a cord lock. So you have to be uh, a little bit gentle just creating a bit of a closure there on the end with the nylon material, and that helps keep wind out. You can't close it entirely. Uh, but usually that end of the hand cover is protected either by the fairing or it's far enough from your hand to where you don't get uh, wind intrusion there. And one of the other features that you guys mentioned there just briefly was the fact that um, you can take it on and off easy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of our... Um, designs is quick installation and deinstallation. Um, if you are an adventure bike rider, you have brush guards, um, you can literally install your covers in less than 20 seconds and remove them at the same speed. They're very easy to put on and off. Um, with a brush guard on an adventure bike or an enduro bike, it also creates a perfect frame for the cover. So it doesn't go anywhere. Um, if you don't have a brush guard on your bike, um, we have um, grommets on the side of the cover. So you can always uh, just remove your bar end and attach it that way. And it also creates a nice uh, a rigid thing without any uh, movement of the front of the cover onto the levers of the bike. It's virtually just a single Velcro closure to create the opening uh, to be able to install it on the bike. And then also just to create that um, the opening for your hand. So it's just a simple Velcro closure. So some of the um, the concerns, I guess, for someone looking at this this product, looking at covering their handlebars, I think initially the first thing to get your head around is you can't see where your levers are. Yeah, I guess that comes just with experience riding the bike. You definitely have to be comfortable without uh, to be able to ride without seeing your brake lever and your clutch lever. I think most of the motorcyclists out there that are riding enough and riding in inclement weather enough are are experienced enough to where that's not an issue with them. Yeah, don't you think uh, that's kind of a mindset? Because I think that's one of those things that pops into people's mind that they think they should be worried about. But the fact of the matter is you don't look at your levers when you're when you're riding. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, maybe, if you're looking at your handlebars, you're doing something maybe wrong. Maybe when you're first learning, honestly. Yeah. I, I, I think when you're first learning, you're it, it's Probably you're probably not in the market for uh, motorcycle hand covers, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, exactly, and probably something you'd want to practice if you didn't. Uh, Absolutely. Already. Absolutely, it takes some getting used to, but uh, you'd be surprised after you use them once. You don't think about it. The other thing is we we have a product called the Backcountry, which is a very small. It uh, it provides wind coverage. It comes only to about where your wrist would be. So actually. Even when that's mounted to the bike, when you take your hand out, you can actually see all of your controls. That's also a model that a lot of people will buy to put on enduro bikes when uh, they're riding dirt and they stand while they ride a lot. It just doesn't uh, it doesn't hit the back of your your wrist or your arm, but it provides so much wind coverage 
to be honest, even that small covered down to very cold temperatures or if it's pouring rain keeps your hand incredibly warm. Yeah, it's amazing what the wind does for sucking the heat out of your hands. And I mean, I think that the cover is just absolutely paramount for the sort of riding. And so um, as, as far as different models, then you mentioned that you have one that's more of a, an enduro one. What else do you have? So we have the small enduro one. We have a midsize cover that covers uh, just about any adventure bike and or enduro bike that's a more all weather cover. And it also, uh, it's called the rogue. It also covers any bike that does not have mirrors on the handlebars. So there's some sport touring bikes and actually some, uh, more than you'd think that actually have no mirrors and mirror stems on the handlebar, which is an attachment point for the hand cover. And the rogue in particular fits those quite well and is secure on bikes that don't have the mirror to use as a, as a point of contact on the handlebar. We also have a large all weather, what you'd call a full winter ready adventure cover called the Alcan. And it is the largest model that we have. It's built to accommodate large hand guards. It's meant to be mounted over the top of brush guards. And it has that nylon uh, skirt, if you will, that goes over the the all of the cables that go down the handlebar there. So there's absolutely no wind intrusion. And you can literally, you could go barehanded in that thing in the middle of winter and your hands would be warm. Those are our three major adventure models. We do have a couple other models that fit some touring bikes. We have um, Harley-specific models, which are a particularly difficult fit because of the downward-facing throttle cables on Harleys. And they also have the handlebar-mounted turn signals, which make them a difficult fit. And we have a model specifically for them. So from, like you mentioned about not having mirrors or, or for instance, the Harley, are there different ones? Like, do I have to order one if I go onto your site to order it for my bike? Or is it sort of a universal fit that'll fit a bunch of bikes? Yeah, uh, right now it's, you can order it model specific. Um, if you go to the website, you just uh, find your bike, find your manufacturer, find and then click on your bike manufacturer, and then it come up with uh, multiple models. So you just find your bike there, click on it, and it will direct you to the correct hand cover or hand covers that will accommodate your motorcycle. And what about if you have multiple bikes? Do you do you look on there and sort of cross-reference? That, that's a great question. Yeah, it depends on what bikes you have. Uh, we have basically five different hand covers at this point uh, and some variations on the Harley that you have options for. But it depends on what bikes you have. If, if you have a Harley and a dirt bike, maybe maybe it doesn't cross over. But maybe you wouldn't want it to. Yeah, that, that would make sense. So, uh, okay, so you guys, have, you're, you're three years into this business. Where are you going tomorrow? What, what's in the, on the design table? Well, mostly fit and finish, uh, easing installation. And we're moving towards uh, all designs that are a little bit lighter weight foam on the inside to make them a little bit lighter and just uh, create the rigidity that uh, leaves the hand opening uh 
accessible at all speeds. And they're also very highly packable. Um, the foam core allows the cover to just be taken off and uh, packed in a, a pannier if you're on a touring trip very easily. Um, you can pack it down pretty flat, no issues there, take it back out, put it back in, and it will hold its form fine. In addition to fine-tuning our products, a big part of our business plan is to educate people about hand covers. We get so much good feedback from people who buy these things and use them that we realize that there's uh, the educational piece on people not real. We have we just sold a pair to a lady the other day who emailed us back, and she's been commuting on motorcycles for 20 plus years, and she wrote us this really sweet email just saying, I can't believe I didn't know about these. I've been freezing my hands every morning, <laughs> you know, all winter for 20 years, and you just changed my whole world. And it's just, uh, and so we're really focusing on that education piece and making them really accessible, easy to put on, um, safe, and just making riding more fun, extending your season and making it more fun. And it's such a simple concept, isn't it, really? I mean, you want to keep your hands out of the wind, especially like, obviously when it gets cold and wet. We've all been there, right? Yeah, yeah. We've all been there. We're just uh, on a really beautiful ride, having a miserable time because your hands are cold. Freezing fingers, yeah. Well, Brian, John, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you for your time. Thank you for your time. Well, there you have it. If you're riding in the cooler weather, it doesn't even have to be wintertime, but even just in the cooler weather on you know, your, as you're pushing the season or starting the season early, Covering your hands, getting your hands out of the wind, it's key. And then with a heated grip inside, you've got it made. And, and as I said, I've tried some different versions that weren't very well made, but um, they were still, you know, they were still reasonably effective. But these things are made by bikers, for bikers. So I really like the sound of them. It's definitely on my wish list. That was Brian and Sully from Hippo Hands. You can find out more about them by visiting their website, www.hippohands.com. David Huff is an author and journalist with over a million miles of motorcycle riding experience under his belt. In 2009, he was inducted into the AMA Hall of Fame for his work in motorcycle journalism, and he also has two awards from the Motorcycle Safety Foundation for Excellence in Journalism. David, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. Well, you're on the, you're on the West Coast right now. What's your weather looking like? Well, right now it looks a little bit better. We've had a lot of rain here, but the uh, the sky is blue, and uh, who knows? Maybe it'll warm up a little bit before the snow falls. I was just going to say, you're fooling yourself, aren't you? I mean, let's face it. We know winter's here. You can't avoid it. Well, uh, the blue sky in a situation like this is what I refer to as a sucker break. <laughs> you know, you look outside and say, wow, this looks like a good day for a ride, not realizing that the snowstorm is just up over the hill. Well, I'm so glad you said that because that brings us to what we're talking about today, which is riding in cooler or cold weather. And, and, you know, you don't like, you know, if you're listening to this in a place where you don't have a cold winter, you're in Australia right now and you're going into the summer or something like that, you still have to deal with uh, temperature changes as you ride different places. And when it comes to adventure riding, we tend to ride in in a lot of extremes. So I think it's probably germane to all of us um, at any time of year to hear this sort of information. But so what do we got to understand about the body, just basically the body and dealing with uh, the weather that we ride through? Sure. Well, the, the body 
has what we call the core, which is basically below your neck and, and above your navel. And that's where all the sensitive organs are, the, the heart, the spleen, the liver, the pancreas, etc. And the core is very self-centered. And it will do whatever it can to maintain its temperature. Uh, what that means is it'll sacrifice fingers if necessary. So uh, basically we have a uh, kind of a, a self-heating, cooling system, uh, if you want. And the body burns food to generate heat. And then the blood is warmed by the core and then the, the, it gets pumped out by the heart to... Uh, to the rest of the system, which includes the extremities and, and your head and so forth. Well, blood near the skin surface gives off heat to the air. So in the summertime when it's hot, the temperature uh, from your body, if it's, if it's starting to go up a little bit, um, it pumps more blood out towards the skin. The skin gives off the temperature, uh, gives off the heat to the air. And so it automatically adjusts blood pressure, blood flow, breathing, and so forth to maintain an almost constant temperature of the central core. Well, if the body senses a drop in core temperature, uh, which is called hypothermia, uh, the response is to shut down blood flow to the extremities. We're starting with the fingers and the toes. Uh, what isn't so obvious is that the head is an extremity too. So when the heating system decreases blood flow to the extremities, there's also less blood and therefore less oxygen to the brain. So the bottom line is that as you become hypothermic, your woozy brain may not comprehend that you're in trouble. And as you start to suffer from hypothermia, that's just a, sort of a, a spiral downward that you fall into and it just becomes worse and worse. So the whole idea here with what we're talking about is to avoid hypothermia. And, and that's what we're talking about. There is hyperthermia, which I know you know about as well, um, which is dealing with the body overheating, but that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about hypothermia or avoiding hypothermia with our, our bodies and the different sort of methods. Like there's the obvious stuff. I mean, I think we all understand the, the things that you naturally do to keep warm. You bundle up when it gets cold, but there's some things that are inherent to motorcycling that um, we can do to keep yourself warm when you're out in this sort of weather, and um, that's what we want to talk about. So what, what do we start with? Well, one of the places that motorcyclists tend to ignore is the neck. Uh, so you, you put on your jacket, you put on your helmet, and then there's this space in between. It has to be there because you have to be able to rotate your head to see what's going on. So you can't really have a jacket that, that secures to the helmet. You have to have this flexible area. And what a lot of riders do is just kind of tough it out. And the problem is that when you're riding on a motorcycle, almost, especially in colder or wetter weather, almost everything is covered except your neck. So uh, assuming you're wearing a helmet, you've got insulation of the head, but then you've got the major blood flow running up the carotid arteries, which are basically... Think of them as, as just in the back of the cheek, right in front of the ear, are these big arteries, and, and they've got warm blood. So if you've got a blast of air from you know the airspeed going by the bike, uh, that's going to suck a lot of heat out of those carotid arteries. So if you wear something over your neck, that becomes very important. Um, there are other areas of the body that could have major heat loss, like in the groin, but your groin is tucked down there over the motor. and you got gear on and insulation. So um, what I have done over the years is to wear a some sort of a neck protector. And the one I really like is called a wind triangle, which is made out of a waterproof, windproof uh, material. And um, so you, you just tuck this around uh, to the back of your neck with a piece of Velcro, and that's it. It stays in place. And it seals off the gap between your helmet 
and the top of your jacket. And it has a hidden um, extra advantage, which is in very cold weather, uh, people from warmer climates wouldn't really understand this, but you should. When, when the temperature of the air is you know 20 below zero or something, all you have to do is breathe it in and you can actually freeze your lungs. So uh, with, the, uh, with the wind triangle or something like that, you can pull this up over your mouth so that when you're breathing the air, you're not breathing the ambient air directly from the outside. So, so it helps you not only externally prevent heat loss from the carotid arteries, it also helps you uh, from damaging your lungs. What other tips do you have? You mentioned your crotch area. Now, I know that is an area that, that can get cold. You get the wind buffeting in there. I guess really you're down to uh, base layers. That's what you're talking about at that point. Yeah, I think it's important to, um, to wear appropriate layers so that when you're riding along on a journey, you can uh, add or remove clothing as needed to adjust. And um, I think we also ought to recognize that there maybe are two kinds of things that we deal with when we're talking about cold weather. One is when you've said to your friends, yeah, I really like the idea of that rally in Whitehorse in November. You know, well, if you're going to do that, uh, you had better get really, really serious about cold weather gear. You know, the other one is that, that you're just, uh, you know, taking a trip to Southern California and you get up on Angeles Crest or someplace, not realizing that it's, you know, 5,000, 6,000 feet high, and you just get up high enough in the clouds that it's cold up there. And so when you're on a ride in just normal conditions, you need to be aware that as you gain altitude, it's, it's going to get cold. And then the question is, what do you do about it? So there are certain little tricks that you can employ. Um, but first of all, let's back up a little bit to this business of the core keeping the body warm. Um, a lot of people will, I've heard people say, well, I, I hate riding in the wintertime because my hands get cold. And uh, what I'm thinking is, yeah, that's because your core is trying to cool down. If you could keep your core warmer, your hands would be warmer because the core would keep pumping hot blood out to the extremities. Uh, so um, here's where something like uh, insulation, at least over the chest, really helps. So you're talking about your scarf over the uh, over your chest area. That helps insulate the chest from the wind blast, and so that helps. Uh, but uh, there's nothing like good old electricity for adding some heat to the body. And uh, I, for years, I resisted uh, getting electric gear, but um, eventually I caved in. And as a friend of mine said, it's a quantum leap in technology for, for motorcyclists. So uh, I don't depend entirely on electric gear, but I think it's very important to have, say, at least an electric vest. And the reason why I'm not saying a jacket or electric wires in your jacket sleeves is because it's the core you want to keep warm. And if you keep the core warm, it'll pump blood out to your arms. The electric vest, I think, is a fantastic idea. I have one myself, and, and I love it. But you don't want to depend totally on that, because if we were talking about this before, and uh, you'd mentioned about the, the thought of a failure, and thinking, if you depend, like if you, you've built your, your uh, riding outfit for cold weather on an electric vest, and it fails, and you're somewhere where you're, you, you know, you're away from everything else, you can be really stuck at that point, because it, it's going to give you nothing. Yeah, you can get in... Uh you can get in trouble really fast if you're depending on something and it fails. And, and uh, I think most of us understand that little fine electric wires are uh, fragile. So 
even though the vest manufacturer can do all they can to to protect, say, the area where it exits the garment and connects up to a cord, you know, that tends to be uh, have a lot of wear and tear, that nevertheless there is the time when something fails. Or, you know, imagine this, you're riding along on your bike and you're miles from from civilization and your alternator fails and you're depending upon your alternator to or your battery to feed your vest well here's your choice do you want to run till the engine quits or do you want to keep your chest warm <laughs> yeah and that's a that's a very good point too your charging system failing and with hypothermia the thing is with it, it it creeps up on you so as you sort of alluded to before as you start to suffer the effects from hypothermia you you actually you're because your brain starts to slow down and and slur a little um it actually thinks that you're doing much better than what you're actually doing it's a bit like getting drunk you know it really is it, it, we have the same things that happen like when the you impaired drivers like the impaired driver that says oh, i drive better when i'm when i'm impaired yeah yeah well so what happens is that you're riding along and it's cold and first of all you start to shiver you know and that's a good sign because that means that the body is trying to move and generate more heat internally when you stop shivering you're in trouble because what that means is that the core is starting to cool down and so what it's doing it's shutting off the blood flow to the extremities and remember this includes the brain and so you're riding along and you think it's really really silly to run off the road and crash the bike into a snowbank and you laugh and holler and say ha ha isn't that funny you know and uh, it so like I say it's a bit like being drunk so what we need to do is to recognize the symptoms of hypothermia and be aware that as you become hypothermic you're probably not going to recognize how serious it is getting so uh, here's my advice You'll be on the road someday in freezing weather, and uh, you're heading up over a pass or whatever, um, and uh, you're saying, boy, it, it's really getting cold. I think I might be getting hypothermic. I'm going to advise you to pull over, wherever this is, on the trail, on the road, pull over, warm your hands up on the cylinder head a little bit, get out your map, get out your GPS, whatever, and make a decision. Should I continue ahead into this, or should I turn around and go back? Because you're on an open vehicle, and there really isn't anything you can do out there to get any warmer short of getting into a house or a vehicle or something or starting a fire, you know. Um, and so my advice is uh, make a decision while your brain is still functioning. Now, it may be that you have to keep going ahead. Okay, put on whatever you have. you got some dirty socks in your bag. Fine, get them out and put them on over your gloves. Uh, you know, pack some you know, some dirty clothing in the front of your jacket. You know, what do you have to do to prepare the best you can for suffering through a really cold situation and go? But if you but if you realize that maybe this is a bad idea, seldom is a motorcycle journey worth losing your life. So, you know, maybe the best thing to do is to bag it, turn around, go back the way you came and, and find a warm place. Now, what you just said there, you went over sort of quickly, so it might be missed that about stuffing stuff in the front of your jacket. That can make the difference, can it, for keeping you warm? It is because that's where the cold air is hitting you. Even if you're riding behind a fairing or a windshield, there's a lot of cold air that's hitting you on the front. 
And remember, it's the core that we want to keep warm, and so that means the front of your jacket. Right, so a good backup, you know, you, you go through your bags, and like you said, your socks, you, if you had newspaper, uh, you mentioned to me one time before about, you know, you could, if you, you felt you were going to go through a temporary area of, of cold, you could always stop by and grab a newspaper and crumple up the newspaper and shove it in the front of the jacket. Yeah, it, it's hard to find newspapers out on the trail. But, well, it's getting but harder to find newspapers in general, David. <laughs> They're disappearing. Well, that's true, but... <laughs> Well, okay, so you can't find newspapers. I can guarantee you that every restaurant is going to have a pile of real estate uh, flyers out front. Yeah, good point. Yep. So grab a bunch of those and stick them in the front of your your pants legs. Stick them, you know, in the front of your jacket. You know, I mean, do whatever steps you can to uh, to try and add some insulation to your gear. What other tips do you have for us? Do you have anything else, uh, little things that you've found over the years of riding that uh, uh, back up things or, or maybe something uh, uh, something in particular that you like to carry with you for cold weather? Well, I think that the, the circumstances into which you might ride, which include cold weather, uh, you know, include so many different environments that you need to be prepared for a lot of it. So, so one trick is simply to have your gear stashed on the machine where you can find it. Because you're riding along and you're saying, man, my hands are getting cold. I should put on my, my winter gloves. Which, but they're in the bottom of the saddlebag on the, you know, on the right side, um, underneath the toolkit and the air compressor. And, you know, so I'll just keep riding. Maybe it won't be as bad as I think. So put your gear in, in things. Now, maybe I'm anal retentive at this. I was at a rally, and um, I said to my friend, um, sorry I'm late, I, I couldn't find my alarm clock. And he said, I know where it is. I said, where is it? He said, it's in your bag marked clocks, because <laughs> I tend to organize my stuff. So if you're organized well, then it's not a problem to stop and get out what you need, and you won't be tempted to just tough it out. So, uh, so that's that's one trick that I have, or not trick, but a tactic is organize your gear in a way that makes sense and uh, and make it easy to get at what you need. Anything else? Well, a lot of people think that uh, if their hands are cold, that what they need to do is to put some kind of insulation over their hands or get electric gloves or something, and certainly that will help. But I think it's it's important that if the core is trying to uh, to warm itself up by shutting off blood flow to the extremities, then what you want to do is you want to insulate your extremities as much as possible. So there are insulated socks. There are uh, various kind of gloves that are insulated. Any other tips? Well, I, I think I'd like to back up just to that most important thing is when, when you think that maybe you're getting a little woozy, you're starting to, to feel a little giddy, a little drunk, if you will, you know, is to... Just remember this one thing, to pound this in the back of your brain somewhere. Stop. Pull over. Get warmed up a little bit and think about what you're doing and make a decision. Should I keep going or should I turn around? I think that's extremely important. Uh, we, we motorcyclists are rugged individualists. Uh, we think that we can ride through anything. And so the tendency is just to keep going and hope it won't be as bad as we think. And what I'm suggesting is that that's a good way to get into trouble, especially because when you're hypothermic, your brain is not functioning as well as it should. And that was David Huff, retired motorcycle journalist and author from his home in Port Angeles, Washington. And if you haven't seen David Huff's books, in particular, Proficient Motorcycling, The Ultimate Guide to Riding Well, well, you owe it to yourself to check that one out. (laughs) 
I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. It's all there, as well as the show notes for this episode and all the episodes we've done. There's a lot of information there to look at. And we have another show called ARR Raw, which is once a month. It's roundtable discussions about motorcycle travel. And there's a group of us on there. Drop by the website and click on the Raw button. If you like what we're doing, you want to help support the show, click on the support button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a shout out on the show. So and we also have uh, Patreon as well, if you're interested in doing a monthly support system. Anyway, it's time to get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks very much. See you next week. listening to Adventure Rider Radio and this is Tiffany Coates on the line from Land's End in England. (laughs) 